0: Good morning church, Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 18, please. Acts chapter 18, we're going to go from verses 18 to the end of the chapter this morning. so let's pray today. Father, we come before you grateful this morning that we have the opportunity to sing your praises, to open up your word, and to dive deep into your scripture, when I pray that our hearts would be inclined to worship you, not only through the music, but through the preaching of the word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to the truth that we see here, that we would be able to. See where our lives line up with the reality of your work, Lord, and that we would be moved to change anything in our life that would uh, be the opposite of what we see here today. We love you, and your son's precious thing that I pray. Amen. All right. It's been an interesting morning. I don't know if you guys noticed, but uh, our two adopted children from Ukraine are here this morning, and so we'd love for you to stop by and say hello to them if you have that opportunity um, you guys were instrumental in getting them here and so I'm grateful both for you know the prayers and the financial support and the willingness to let me just take off for three weeks and uh, spend time in another country and get them here and uh, so I'm so thankful to you all um, so yeah I'm going to just point that out there and say thank you uh, last week uh, in our passage we were uh, watching Paul as he is uh, as he made his way to Corinth after leaving Athens right in Corinth Paul meets a couple named Aquila and Priscilla who had come there from Italy and after meeting them Paul lives with them he works with them as he continues doing his missionary work every week on the Sabbath, he's also going to the synagogue and he's debating with the Jews there. And I mentioned that this uh, arrangement posed potential threat to Aquila and Priscilla since being associates of Paul has been known to have some dire consequences to it. We pointed out Jason who had been pulled out of his house and made to pay a security bond to make sure that Paul was going to go away and not come back. Uh, so this potential for threat to them didn't, doesn't seem to bother them. Uh, they not only let Paul live with them and work with them for a while, but this week we're going to see that they eventually leave with him, uh, and they go on the journey with him to do ministry in Ephesus. And while in Corinth, God promises Paul a vision that he was going to be safe there while he was doing his mission work. And this is a huge promise from God to Paul, because everywhere that Paul has gone to this point, it seems like somebody there wants to hurt him. Somebody is willing to, to slander him, to do him harm in some way. Uh, and the reason for this is that the message of the gospel is offensive to the Jews, and it seems foolish to the Gentiles. You know, you got the, the Jews who believe he's being sacrilegious, and he's being blasphemous, and then the Gentiles are like, why should I believe this nonsense? People don't rise from the dead. And so it seems foolish to the Gentiles. Not only does it seem foolish in their eyes, but it's disruptive to their life. Right? When the gospel comes in and when people accept the the gospel, they accept salvation in Christ, their lives change. When their lives change, it means that marriages change. Right? It means that father and son relationships change. Mother and daughter relationships change. Lives change. You've got businesses that are changed. All of a sudden you have a group of people in Athens who are you're buying idols left and right, and suddenly as the gospel comes in and it pervades the city, people are buying less and less idols. So all of a sudden, livelihoods are being challenged, and they don't like that. Right In Acts 17, in that instance where Jason was pulled out, it is said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They're disrupting everything, just with the power of the gospel. And people don't like change And they see Paul as the primary cause of that, and they want him to go away. So they challenge him, they threaten him, they push him out. And so in Paul's mind, there's always this need to be mindful of the social, the financial, the political climate that's taking place all around him. Otherwise, he's going to find himself in trouble. He has to be ready to go at the drop of a hat, which has to be exhausting. Right? If you're on like that all the time, you're just constantly looking around to see when things are going to turn on you and when you have to leave so that you can be safe, there's got to be a lot of anxiety that builds up from that. But here in Corinth, God gives him a reprieve from that anxiety by promising that nothing bad is going to happen to him. God tells him that no one's going to lay a hand on you here because there's a lot of people in this city and I need them to hear the gospel from you so nobody's going to mess with you. And so Paul gets this protection from disruption in his work for the two years that he spends in Corinth. And now, this morning, we're going to see Paul move on from Corinth and we're going to see him wrapping up this second missionary journey that he's been on since Acts 16 or so. We're going to see him wrap this up and then fairly quickly, he's going to begin the third missionary journey not too long after he wraps up the second one. And Luke is moving us very quickly through the narrative at this point. right? That could be because he just didn't have a ton of information about what was happening in Paul's life at this point, or it could be that he really wants to focus our attention on the fact that Paul is finally getting to go to Asia. Right? You may remember that the Holy Spirit refused to let him go at the beginning of the second missionary journey. That's where he wanted to go to begin with, and the Holy Spirit said no. And he kept trying to go to different places, and he got a vision that he needed to go to Macedonia. Well, now he's finally going to get the opportunity to go to Asia like he wanted to. And that brings us to Acts chapter 18, verse 18 to 28. We're going to read it all. Follow along with me. It says, After staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He shaved his head at Sincrea because of a vow that he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a while longer, he declined, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, He set out traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the church disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Ikea, Ikea sorry, uh, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 18, after spending so much time with Paul in Corinth, we see Priscilla and Aquila, they decided to join him for a brief time on his journey back to Antioch. Antioch was his sending church. And so, on his way out of town, out of Corinth, in a town called Synchrea, we learn something random about Paul. So, somewhere along the way, Paul has made a vow that involved growing his hair out. Paul was usually bald, I think. And so, at this point, he had made a vow which involved growing his hair out. This is likely a Nazarite vow. If you look at your worship guide there, I put some information about that there for you, uh, due to the fact that he shaved his head at the end of the vow. And if you're not familiar with that, and don't want to turn to Numbers chapter 6 right now, uh, the vow is meant for a man or a woman, it could be either one, uh, to consecrate themselves before the Lord. Right? The steps of this process involve abstaining from anything from the vine. You can even eat a grape, no alcohol, strong drink, none of that. You abstain from any of that. Then you're not allowed to cut your hair for the duration of the consecration, whatever time you have set up. You do not cut your hair for that length of time. And there's no going near a dead body for the entire time of that consecrate, consecration because then you would become unclean. Right? So not even a loved one. So if a a mother, father dies, if you go near that body, then you lose that consecration that you have set yourself apart on. It says, even if a guy dies next to you, so right, you're just walking down a path and the guy next to you falls over and dies, your consecration has thus been ended and you have to go through a process and start it all over again from the beginning. Right? So, when the time that was set apart for doing this is over, you would shave your head and you would keep the hair. Right? You would take that with the sacrifice up to the temple, and then you would sacrifice the animal and you would burn the hair on the altar. And obviously, this seems very strange to us today because we have nothing anywhere close to doing this uh, culturally. And it may even seem strange biblically because Paul understands he's not under the law anymore. And so offering sacrifices and offering burnt offerings to the Lord may seem like a step back to what he's been preaching, right? Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to become part of the kingdom of God, right? It's not necessary to observe all the sacrifices, all the rituals, and all the law-bound celebrations that Israel was made to celebrate in honor of their relationship with God. We can just come to faith through Christ, and so what's up with this vow that just popped up out of nowhere? We don't know anything about it, um, but it's here. So what, what's going on here? Well, it could be a number of things. Right? Paul states in 1 Corinthians 9 that he's willing to do whatever is necessary that's not sinful in order to win over people to Jesus. In verses 19 to 23 in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. It says, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law, to those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I'm not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to those without the law. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means to save some. Now, I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. All right, so even though through Christ, he's no longer under the law and isn't required to submit himself to vows like this before the Lord, it could be that he's showing that he still values the law in the lives of the Jews. All right. the law is still important. The law is still relevant. <laughs> I mean, remember what Jesus said in in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So the law is very important. The purpose of the law is to show us God's nature and his character. And it was meant to be put up in front of us like a mirror, so we could hold the law over here in a mirror here and go, I'm supposed to be like that, and I'm not. I can't, I can't live up to this. Right? The law says you have to be this in order to be in relationship with God. And a truly self aware person sees it, they understand I can't live up to that, which the law then says that's right. That's why you need the Messiah. That's why you need Jesus. Right? Jesus will live the life that you can't live, he'll die the death that you deserve so that you can be restored to life and relationship with God the Father through him. So, the law is still relevant. right? It's still important to everyone today because it shows us our need for Christ. So, Paul could be, in doing this vow, he could be throwing off the notions that he's completely disregarded the law. This was a common refrain from people that were coming against Christ paul mostly the jews so there's a charge that says he is denying the law and actually in this chapter in verse 13 the jews there claimed that paul was persuading people to worship god in ways that were contrary to the law and that's just simply not the case and so this vow could be paul's way of showing the jews in corinth that he still follows the law Right? He still recognizes the value of the law. The difference is that in Christ, he's no longer bound by the law. He's no longer crushed by the law because Christ fulfilled the law. So that might be one reason. Another possibility is based on the fact that he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to show the leadership of the church there that he hasn't disregarded the law. Right? He's been roaming around in Gentile territory for a while now, Right? He's been preaching that you don't have to submit to the rituals of the law, the sacrificial law, right? and so they could be afraid that maybe he's gone off reservation at this point, and they may be wondering if he's still orthodox in his beliefs. And so this vow might be the means of showing him, I'm still your God, I'm still in the people of God, or lastly, it might not have anything to do with anybody, it could be the fact that he's simply pointing an outward expression of gratitude to God for keeping him safe in Corinth. Right? It can be any of these things. But whatever reason it's there, that's what's happening. Right? He threw his hair out, he shaved it, and then he is moving on. From there, it says that he sails away to Ephesus for a brief time. And he's going to come back here. This is going to be the primary point of his next missionary journey. Uh, and he's going to spend three years there. But for now, this is just a short visit. Uh, when he gets there, he does the same thing he always does. He goes into the synagogues, he debates the Jews, uh, and then something happens that I really don't understand. I don't get I don't this at all. The Jews ask him to stay for a longer time, and Paul declines. What in the world? Like, suddenly, Paul finds himself in a place where they're not trying to kill him. He finds himself in a place where they say, hey, that's interesting, I want to hear more about that. Typically, he's running for his life to get away from these cities because they want to kill him. These guys say, hey, could you stay a little bit longer? I'd like to hear more about that. And he goes, i gotta come, I got to go, but I'll come back if the Lord wills. I don't, I don't understand. And then he just leaves. He leaves, and he leaves a quilt that in Ephesus. Maybe he's like, they can answer all your questions. I've got I somewhere I need to be. It's not explained why. It doesn't say why he didn't stay. He just goes. It says after leaving Ephesus, Paul goes to Caesarea, and there he goes to Jerusalem, greets the church, and after that, he moves on to Antioch, which, like I said, was his sending church. These are the people that gave him money and said, hey, you need to go share the gospel with the world, uh, where I'm sure he gave a full debrief of everything that happened on this second missionary journey. And It says in verse 23, we're told that Paul spends some time there before he leaves again on that third missionary journey. Right? Some time, though, could not be that long. right? Maybe a few months. Because according to most biblical timelines, it says that Paul hits Corinth at 51 AD. He spent two years there. And then it says in most biblical timelines that he was in Ephesus again on that third missionary journey by 54 AD. So he spent two years in Corinth, probably several months traveling to get back to Jerusalem... And then by 54 A.D., he's again found in Ephesus. So, like, this is a man that cannot be still. He has got a mission from God. He's passionate about that mission. He wants to see the gospel go forth. He wants to see disciples of Christ strengthened in their understanding of the word and the faith. And so he doesn't sit around idle. He just gets back to work after this long journey. And it's at this point in our passage that Luke takes a break from Paul's journey, and he's going to introduce us a man, to a man named Apollos. Apollos was Alexandria, and Alexandria is a city that's known for its high intellect. That's where you go to study. That's where you go to learn, right? It's famous for its library. You may have heard of the library in Alexandria, right? It's the home of several philosophical and religious scholars, people that, if I mentioned their names, you would would recognize them. And so it's highly likely that Apollos is a highly educated man. Luke tells us that he was eloquent and that he was competent in the use of the scriptures. He's been educated in the way of the Lord. And Luke tells us that he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, even though he only knew about John's baptism at this point. And so Apollos, he's engaging the Jews in the synagogue, and while he's there, he's noticed by Priscilla and Aquila. Right, It became clear to them through his teaching that there is some information in his message that is lacking, and so they took him aside, and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. Now, and there's a couple of things that I want to point out regarding this introduction of Apollos. The first thing now, I want to point out is that he had been taught the things of God and that he made it a point to share the things that he had been taught. Right. It's apparent through this passage that he doesn't know everything. Right. There was something lacking in his message. And yet he took what he knew and he engaged people with what he had. Right? This is something that I talk to us about all the time. Like This is what every Christian is called to do with the knowledge that we have of the Lord. Right, You take what you know, you engage people who need to hear the truth of the gospel, and let the circumstances fall as they do as we go. But that is what every one of us is called to do. You take what you know about God and share it with people who need to hear it. And now, you might look at the uh, description of Apollos and think, yeah, but Luke said he was eloquent, right? And that he was confident in the use of scriptures, and I'm neither of those things. well, there might not be anything that you can do about your eloquence, okay? Maybe there's not. That is sometimes a gift of God that he has given to certain people so that they can do very specific things with their ministry. Right. You don't you don't speak to hundreds of thousands of people without having the gift of gab. Right. So maybe that's not exactly what God has called you to do with your ministry. So you might not be waiting out into the public square and entering into discussions and debate out there for the whole world to see. Maybe what God has called you to do is something smaller. Right? Maybe he's saying, hey, more face-to-face. I want you with family. I want you with friends. I want you with coworkers. I want you with neighbors, that sort of thing. Right? It doesn't require eloquence to engage in conversation with those people. It requires relationship. And we're all capable of that. We're all capable of building those relationships, of facilitating those relationships, of building up those relationships. And we should do so with the mindset that we're going to engage people with the gospel as we do it. And then you might think, well, but maybe, I'll, I'll give you that, but maybe I'm not confident with the Scriptures either. And that, though, is something that can be worked on. In fact, that's something that you should be working on consistently. And it's one of the main focuses of our corporate gathering of the church, right? We centralize the preaching and teaching of the word so that you will be ready for teaching, rebuking, and training up in righteousness as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That's what the word is for. And all we have to do for that to have an impact on our life is to make it a priority. We have to make it a a non-negotiable part of our lives. Make it a point to learn as much as you can about the ways of God. Make it a point to learn as much as you can about the Scripture. And when you do that, then you make it a point to share what you have learned with someone else. Right? Too often, many Christians sit in a position of passivity, right, and they expect only to be fed. Right? Have you ever heard someone, like, they left the church because they weren't being fed at that church? Right now, it's certainly important, right? So don't don't hear me wrong here. It is certainly important that the church is providing solid biblical teaching and training for everyone there, so that they can be equipped for the work of the ministry that God has predestined them to. So it is important, but at some point we have got to stop acting like baby birds that sit in the nest, craning for our next meal, right? And we have to get involved in the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Right? We have to move from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity if we're going to take the Great Commission seriously and make disciples of all nations. Right Now, to be short, this is an issue that has plagued the church since the beginning of the church. In Hebrews 5, 11 14, the author of Hebrews says this to his audience. We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. And so with that in mind, it is our responsibility to become competent with the Word of God, and it's our responsibility to share it as we go, both as we are learning it, right, and as we go throughout our lives. So we're not sitting on the sidelines waiting until we reach a certain point of spiritual maturity before we go out and tell people what we know about God. Like, there's always someone there who doesn't know what you know. So find those people and share the truth of the gospel with them. So that yeah. Oh okay, soapbox. sorry about that. The next thing that I want to point out about the introduction of Apollos is Apollos' attitude when it became apparent that he didn't know everything that he needed to know in order to teach the ways of God fully. So when Priscilla and Aquila, they heard him, they realized that he's lacking understanding. We don't know exactly what he's lacking, but something's not quite lining up with everything that he needs to be sharing. And so they pull him aside, and they teach him what he needs to know. So Apollos allows them to pull him aside, and he allows them to teach him. And so as eloquent and as well-learned as he is, he is humble enough to be taught. Right? The Bible is a living book. Right, Every time we open it, every time we dive into it, we're going to see more and more in the text. And the context of our lives will often dictate what we take from it as we go. There's only one meaning. So I'm never going to ask you, so what does that passage mean to you? Like, I might ask you, how does that passage apply to you? But there's one meaning but there could be multiple applications. And as we go throughout our lives, there's going to be differences in how it applies to us. Right? So we must never come to the conclusion that we have no more to learn about the Word of God. Often, the best teachers are the most voracious students. There are people who cannot get enough, and they just keep going back for more and for more. They have this insatiable desire to learn, and when they learn it, they, have, they can't hold it in. They want to share it with someone else. Right. So when a teacher comes to the point that they know all that they need to know about a particular subject, it's almost certain that their teaching is going to be hindered by it. Now, when you think you have arrived, or when you're following someone who thinks that they have arrived, I, I can guarantee you they're on the downhill slope to some problem. I mean, it's going to be a sin problem. It's going to be a teaching problem. There's going to be some kind of problem that's going to arrive when the teacher arrives where they think that they don't need to learn anymore. And so, Apollos was humble enough to recognize that he didn't know it all, and he was being he was willing to be taught by someone who knew more than he did. Right. So he he's coming like harder. Right. We don't know the background. of Priscilla and Aquila, but they've been with Paul, so they've gotten a pretty good education as well. And yet, Apollos is willing to listen to these two who knew more about this than he did. And the last thing that I wanna point out this morning is the attitudes of Priscilla and Aquila in their efforts to better educate Apollos. Now, when it became apparent to them, that Apollos wasn't teaching the full gospel. They took it upon themselves to give him a better understanding of what he was lacking. So they're teachers as well. Right? They saw someone who needed more information so that they could do so that he could do a better job at teaching as he goes. And so they made it a point to approach him and offer him more understanding. So, guys, this is the epitome of discipleship. Right? This is exactly what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. We teach what we know about God to people who know less about it than we do, all the while learning from people who know more than we do about it. We never stop. We're constantly being poured into and then pouring out. And it's a non-stop existence for the believer in Christ. So we see three things in their approach to Apollos. Number one, we see their compassion, Number two, we see their humility. And number three, we see their conviction. They could have called Apollos out in the synagogue. He's there debating with the Jews. They heard some things that weren't quite lining up, so they could have easily been like, no, no, that's not right. This is the truth. And they could have completely derailed Apollos' ministry if they had done it that way. Right? They didn't do that. They pulled it aside, Said, hey, you're missing some stuff here. Let us tell you the parts of that that you're missing. And this is how we should approach situations like this. Right? It might not be a situation where we hear someone teaching something that is incorrect, or in this case, incomplete. Because if it's say he was teaching the right stuff, he just didn't have enough stuff. Right? So it might be a situation where someone proclaims to be a Christian, yet they're living a life that would indicate that's not correct. Right. You say you love Jesus, you say that you follow Christ, your life doesn't line up with what you are saying, and so maybe you have to go and address that. Uh, maybe it's just simply a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Right? Like I go back to this idea of you know, hedging whether or not I became a Christian when I was eight, or if I became a Christian when I was a senior in college, because there was a big period of time in there where I wasn't living life like a believer in Christ. And I think at this point, as I constantly go back and forth at it, it's just I didn't understand what it meant to follow Christ well. Like I had, I was an immature believer, I had a lot of spiritual maturity, and I lived a worldly life as I was progressing in my faith. And it took me a while, but I finally got to the point where God beat me over the head said, that's enough of your nonsense, I got some stuff for you to do, let's get with the program. And that required a godly church who was willing to pour into me to show me how a you're saying that 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 here's the word here's your life what does that look like not good and so we need people in our lives that will do what aquila and priscilla will do and we need them to be humble about it right you got people that just don't understand They just don't have a right understanding of you, know, you have the Corinthians, for example, who thought they had so much freedom in Christ that they celebrated the fact that uh, a man was sleeping with his stepmother, right? Yay, freedom in Jesus. No, 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 no. That's nonsense. You need to kick those people out of the church. Like, that's not how we live for God. So we have to have this. We have to have compassion and humility like Priscilla and Aquila, when we see people who are living lives that don't match up with what they're teaching or what they say they believe, and we should certainly do it. That's where the conviction comes in, right? They had compassion, they had humility, and they had conviction. They heard something that was being taught. It was lacking what was necessary for it to be fully understood, and they had conviction that something needed to be done. Right, they could just turn their backs on it. They can go, I have to work out. Right, I need to stay in my lane. That's a that's a pretty popular thing that people to be told. Stay in your lane. Right, so they could have thought, this is not loving to correct him. Right, so he's out there teaching incomplete truths. And they could be like, well, you know, but God bless him. Right, it just wouldn't be nice to 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 correct him. So we're not going to do that. Um, but when we see something. That is being taught incorrectly or being lived out incorrectly it's important for us to address the issue that's an act of love right for us to continually allow someone to wander off from the path, so that we don't upset them someone from the church that's preaching or teaching or living out something that does not that shows that they're either not a christian or confused about what it means to be a christian it is not a loving thing for us to let them do that. We need to have conviction to go after them. We need to have so much respect for the Word of God. We need to have so much respect for the church that when we see this stuff, we address it. It needs to mean something to us. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they they said, That's not right. You're, you're not quite there. And so to address that, they pulled him aside. They taught him. They spent their time, time, and resources to address this issue. And then we're going to see, like, there is a, Apollos does amazing things with his ministry. Another one of the things that the Corinthians get corrected on is that they start joining up into camps. Well, I follow Jesus. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. So they get corrected for that as well. But the idea here is that Apollos is a big deal. He does a lot of good for the kingdom of God, and he probably wouldn't have done as well if these people hadn't loved him enough to engage him when they saw him he was wrong or incomplete. And so with this in mind, a couple of application questions for you. Number one, are you studying the Word of God? Right? Like, we can't sit back and say, I don't know enough about the Word of God to engage people with the Word of God and then not study the word of God. That doesn't make sense. Right? We have to make this a priority in our life. We have to make sure that this is something that is a non-negotiable in our life. We're going to study this. We're going to build ourselves up with it. And then we're going to pour out all that we know. So are you studying the word of God? Secondly, are you teaching the word of God? All right, we don't age out of this. You don't get the tag out. We, if you read the, the church planting handbook, which is Titus, you see that the older people are constantly teaching the younger people what it means to follow God. And that is what we should be doing at every step of our life. We should find someone that's older than us, not necessarily like chronologically, but spiritually older than us, that is mature in their faith, have them pour into us, and then we should overflow from that and pour that into someone else. That's across the board. Even if you don't have a teaching gift, You should find someone to sit down, have a cup of coffee with, and discuss the things of God with. Alright, so be poured into and be pouring into someone else. And lastly, are you so serious about the Word of God that you are willing to humbly and compassionately correct someone when you hear inaccuracies in what they're teaching or what they're doing with their life? Alright, does it mean that much to you? Because like, there's so much conviction that this is important. That you are willing to put yourself out there in a humble and compassionate way. But a way that like I'm going, whether they respond to it well or not, I still have to address this with them. This isn't right. Now, do you have that as a mindset in your life? Right? Are you studying the Word? Are you teaching the Word? And are you correcting those who don't seem to have a complete understanding of what it is? means to teach that. Something to think about this week as we go from here and engage people with the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, it's a great joy to know that you speak to us through your word. And I pray that we would be like Apollos and that we would be like the Silent and Aquila in this uh, tale of Acts 18, that we would be competent in your word, That we would be willing to step out and speak and speak what we know, even if we don't know it all, which we will never fully learn everything there is to know about you. And so God, I pray that we would be desiring to to grow and to pour out all that we have uh, for the benefit of someone else. Help us to seek out discipleship from those who are more spiritually mature than us and help us to pour out into those who are less spiritually mature than us. We've got this all around us all the time, and I pray that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would give us a conviction in our heart to pursue it, and that we would see much fruit come of it uh, in this church and in this community. We ask all these things in your son's precious name.